Welcome to the J. Kim Show, Hong Kong's first dedicated podcast on investing in Asia. It's no secret that Asia is home to some of the most dynamic, innovative, and game-changing companies in the world. Join us as we survey the land to find the most profitable investment opportunities that will allow you to capitalize off this next wave of wealth creation. If this is your first time listening, thank you for stopping by. This podcast is produced with the goal of providing actionable insights with every single episode. And now, onto the show. Hey, Tadas, thanks so much for joining us. We're very delighted to have you on board, and uh, we appreciate your time. Uh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Uh, I stumbled upon your work, uh, I believe it was on Twitter, and uh, you've been sort of an early pioneer in, in uh, blogging, financial blogging. And so um, for the audience uh, tuning in from around the world, maybe you could give us a little bit of background on yourself and uh, you know, how you got into investing. Sure. Well, I've been involved in the financial markets pretty much uh, my entire adult life. So I feel, uh, you know, it's, it's not so, it's come something that I have been doing for a long time and in a number of different formats. So, uh, which, which reminds me, I, I mean, I've been blogging before Twitter was actually a thing. So uh, it shows you how long that I've been, I've been at this. So yeah, I mean, Twitter has been instrumental, I think, in, uh, you know, in the financial markets and in the investment arena. Uh, but like I said, I've been, uh, I was blogging before there, before there ever was a Twitter. So, but like I said, no, I've had an, I've had a number of different roles in the investment world. Uh, but, um, and, you know, including as an analyst, a quantitative analyst, uh, I've written a number of, uh, co-authored a number of papers, uh, you know, on various sorts of academic topics and I've written a book as well. And so, uh, I like to say that I have a kind of a broad exposure to uh, investments and finance. Uh, it may not be the deep, you know, uh, I know a lot, I know a lot about it. Of, uh, I know a little bit about a lot of things. So. Right. Um, well, I, you know, the, the markets are so abundant and there's so many, it, it's one of these uh, just huge, huge universe. So there's, there's so many rabbit holes you can go down to and, Certainly, one person's lifetime is definitely not long enough to, to, to capture all of it, uh, let alone even try to master one of these uh, topics. But um, Well, no, I, yeah, no, that's a great point. I think that's actually attraction to a lot of people to, to get into investments is that, like you said, it really is almost infinite in terms of, um, you know, uh, being able to pursue your interests. And like you said, being able to pursue specific topics uh, and take a deep dive. So, Yeah, absolutely. So... Um, you you mentioned that you were an, an analyst. Uh, was it an analyst or a quant a quant quant analyst? Or, or? Uh, I, I I served as a, I was a kind of a fundamental equity analyst, and I shifted over to do some quantitative research. And so uh, I, I've kind of had a exposure to a lot of different things. Yeah, so that that uh, that's interesting because um, I that leads me to my next question. Actually, is sort of uh, if you could, you know, I know you're a private investor uh, that has has been active in the markets uh, for for a couple decades now. Um, what what's your sort of investment style? Because I, I feel like uh, when I I've I've spoken to a lot of people, and you know, I've been in the markets myself a long time, and. Uh, I feel like when I started off, uh, my, my style has changed dramatically, uh, mostly because I didn't know anything when I was <laughs> starting off. And I know a little bit more now, uh, but also I've realized that what suits my personality and what is more sustainable for me, whereas some of the earlier strategies that I was using, which is more sort of uh, high, not high frequency, but more trading, momentum driven, that sort of stuff. Um, I don't have the energy for that anymore. And uh, I have less of the, I feel like I have less of the personality. So I'm just curious, what's your sort of investment framework now? Uh, 
having come from say like a uh, equity analyst, which is a very fundamental uh, bottom up type, uh, you know, uh, analysis. And then quant, quant is, is almost, it's almost the, I wouldn't say opposite, but it's a very different style because you're using sort of factors sure. and rules as opposed to um, sort of a, a fundamental uh, start. So maybe you could share with yeah. us a little bit. Well, th there's a lot there and I have, you know, I would say that my experience kind of parallels yours. I think people who, uh, you know, are interested in the markets at kind of a um, early on in their career, um, you know, oftentimes don't know what they don't know and they feel like they have the ability to, you know, pick stocks or trade, you know, do, like you said, engage in relatively high frequency trading. And, you know, I'm, I, I'm guilty of that as well. I was, <laughs> I was, I was that, I was that type of person as well. I traded, you know, I traded equities, I traded, you know, futures, I did all sorts of different things. And, you know, like you said, whether it's a question of, uh, personality or aging or really just trying to match up your style with um, you know with your personality I think I, I followed kind of that track as well and I'm kind of more in the uh, do now I'm trying to do less uh, consciously do less and with my portfolio than uh, than I did previously so I think that's you know and I think it's interesting because you know oftentimes I get a question like from people and they'll say oh you know what you know what book should I read to learn about investing and it's funny because everybody kind of has their own path and I can't say it's difficult for me to say oh read this book or read this book because it's going to give you the answer because I think you really like you said you have to you have to do it. You have to make your mistakes. Mm. You know, hopefully, hopefully, learn from your mistakes and kind of, uh, kind of fashion your education process around that. And so, uh, you know, I, you know, I, your your story uh, rings very true to me. And so, like you said, I'm I'm trying to do as you know as little as possible because I I recognize that uh, when I do trade, it not only um, you know, am I liable to make a mistake, but it also has um, a detrimental effect on, um, you know, my energy and my psyche and all of that. And so uh, just trying to focus on trying to focus on making the fewest mistakes possible is really, uh, you know, maybe the best summation of my strategy at this point. It's, it's funny, because I feel like uh, I, when, when I was younger, and I'm, I'm curious if this was the same experience, a lot of people when they're younger, they're, they're, they have, they seem to have less patience. And so, uh, you know, I mean, I start I was on the sell side for a long time, which is probably the, it can be the, one of the best places, but it could also be one of the worst because there's a lot of, uh, it's driven by a lot of greed, I think. And especially sure. when you get thrown into that environment right out of college, you don't know what you're doing and you're sitting on this desk and everyone's making more money than you <laughs> and, and driving fancier cars. And so you just want that. And so you, immediately you think, okay, what's the fastest way that I can go from here getting coffee for the desk to being one of them? And it right. drives you to this sort of, uh, okay, let's make some quick wins and let's try to, to climb up the scale. And then I feel like as time goes on, and, and of course you learn those painful lessons, like you said, uh, and then maybe you start making some more money and then you realize, okay, you know, you learn a little bit more about risk reward and what's actually worthwhile and what's not, and you get more patient, right? Yeah, no, I, I, you know, it's interesting. I, I wrote a post, it's probably been a couple of years ago, talking about not only compounding, you know, your returns, but also compounding your education. Mm. And I think, like you said, I think that's really important in terms of 
um, you know, everybody's going to mistakes, going to make mistakes along the way. And it's really learning from those mistakes and kind of advancing your knowledge as you move forward. And like you said, it's not just your knowledge of the markets, uh, but it's also about knowledge of yourself. And so knowing, knowing your capabilities, knowing your limitations, uh, knowing when you, um, uh, are liable to make a mistake, all of that. And, and being able to kind of said, make incremental, um, advancements along the way is important. I mean, there's a great, you know, it's kind of, it's almost folklore at this point, but, um, you know, there's a story where Warren Buffett didn't become a billionaire until his mid fifties. And so, you know, obviously he's worth, you know, I don't know what it is now, but it's tens of billions, but you know, it's kind of a slow build. And, you know, one of the challenges is not making big mistakes along the way that really, uh, you know, prevent you from making those, uh, being able to compound, um, you know, your returns over time. Yeah. And it's, and the internet certainly has changed things. Uh, and not, you know, it, it's a double-edged sword, I, I feel, because uh, for all the uh, access that the internet allows us now, and just, uh, you know, it really, it just opens up a a whole new uh, dimension that just brings down the access, the, the barrier to entry. So that's great. That part of it's great. Mm-hmm. But it also has this dark side where you see, you know, you're exposed to a lot more of, uh, I don't know, just, you know, like that dark side of, oh, you know, getting rich quickly and, you know, uh, and not doing the work and, and getting rich slowly and that whole mentality of there's no overnight success, you know, whatever, 30 uh, year overnight success or whatever it is. Um, no, but that's not new. I mean, that's, that's just, I think that's, uh, that's human nature. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think, you know, even before the internet, there were all sorts of get rich quick schemes and a lot of people taking a lot of shortcuts. So I think, like you said, the internet may accelerate that and may make it more salient, but I think that's human nature. And like you said, I think learning, um, you know, I, I think unfortunately people have to kind of learn those lessons the hard way, um, you know, that those, those type of uh, tactics and strategies usually don't work. And so, um, yeah, I think the internet definitely has changed things. You know, I, I remember the time before the internet <laughs> when, uh, you know, you had to go to the library to look up stuff about a, about a company or about a mutual fund or things like that. But so, um, but like you said, you know, human nature doesn't change. The internet's yeah. changed information uh, the acceleration of information certainly has changed, but human nature hasn't. And uh, greed oftentimes is the least common denominator that, uh, that drives the market. So, uh, so hence the markets are still the markets. Um, so uh, you got into sort of the online blogging space very early. What drove you to, to doing that? I mean, almost a, a pioneer in, in blogging, you know, this was, web 1.0 so uh yeah no it was definitely early and like i said no early you know prior in my career i had written uh had co-authored a number of papers on various sorts of uh, research topics so that kind of gave me the bug initially to um to to write about investments and have that be an outlet and then Kind of later on in my career, I was uh, involved in a hedge fund startup, and uh, after that uh, came to its conclusion, I kind of, I kind of, I wrote a book proposal, um, kind of essentially hedge funds 101, um, 
uh, kind of trying to explain the world of hedge funds, uh, you know, a little bit of a, a how-to on how to start one and, and where they might fit in the investment world. Uh, and unfortunately, that book proposal really didn't get very far, but that was kind of the spur for me to, uh, you know, start the blog and get online and, and start writing. And so, uh, you know, eventually I wrote my book, but, uh, you know, that... Uh, that initial idea for a book was really what drove me to, to get online. And it was really, um, uh, you know, I think it's interesting because it's interesting because a, a number of people that were writing when I started writing are still out there. And so I think it definitely shows you that there's, you know, and, and over time I've seen a lot of people start, uh, start writing and then quit, um, you know, for any number of different reasons. But I think it shows you that there's a, a certain percentage of uh, the population and people out there who really do uh, get some satisfaction and get uh, some energy from writing for a brighter audi- broader audience. And so, um, you know, I think that's, you know, if, if, if nothing else that I do on the Abnormal Returns blog is really try and uh, highlight the work of those people and bring it to a broader audience. Yeah, I think you're right. The, um, it, it's funny because uh, before I think there was a, a quite a distinct divergence between uh, industry folks, say, working at, you know, major institutions. And uh, it, was almost, it was almost like a, a divide, like a separation, a compliance divide, if you will. Like, if you're doing research for a Southside firm or something like that, you wouldn't really do a blog or anything because, you, you know, you don't want to get in trouble and, and this sort of thing. Um, and then you, have, you, you had your financial publishers, and that model's been around for a long time, people mm-hmm. doing the newsletters and that sort of thing. Sure. Uh, but then I feel like in the last decade, uh, you know, ten, five to 10 years, there's been a lot of crossover. And now I see a lot of uh, people in sort of asset management, fund management, or, you know, uh, financial advisors having very successful blogs that are high traffic and they yeah. put out a lot of good stuff. Um, and there's, there's, you know, there's ways and like podcasts and this sort of thing. And there's ways to mm-hmm. very explicitly make sure you're not, you know, you're abiding by, you know, the, the SEC rules and, and not recommending right. your own funds and this sort of thing. Um, so I, I, I like the way that, that, that things are moving in that direction. Um, and having said that, you do mention a good point that it is challenging to, um, to write every day or, or however, or with, uh, with good frequency, uh, whether it's once a week right. or even once a week. I mean, uh, I, I even struggle with write once a week and I don't know some of these guys sure. write daily. Um, and I don't know how they do yeah. it. Like, Jared Dillion, uh, I'm sure you, you know him as well. He yeah. writes every day. And uh, I, I actually used to work with Jared at Lehman Brothers. Um, we started there at the, around the same time. So, um, uh, yeah, but he's done very, extremely well. And, uh, and he puts out, uh, like, good stuff every day. <laughs> and yeah. it's dense, you know. Yeah. So yeah, no, it's, no, it's definitely a challenge. And I think you, you mentioned podcasts. I think that's maybe in the last... You know, at first it was blogs and then it was, you know, financial professionals getting on Twitter and stock twits. And, and now I think really kind of the last wave has been um, podcasting and video. Mm-hmm. And I, I really find that podcasting has been um, hugely educational. I mean, I'm being able to hear from somebody on, in kind of a long form, long form format, really talk about their experiences and whether they're talking about a book or whether they're, t- you know, talking about something else. I really find that I, I have been, you know, I'm always pleasantly surprised at kind of the, the quality of uh, content that's put out in the podcasting arena. And I think, you know, like you said, uh, we were talking earlier, you know, I teach a class, um, 
on investments and I have integrated podcasts into uh, the curriculum That's just great. because I think it's um, not only uh, not only is it informative, but it's another, you know, it's kind of another way of uh, kind of being able to take in that material instead of just having to read it, uh, you know, read it in a book or read it online, being able to hear from people in their own voices, I think is really helpful. I actually find it, uh, this is maybe a personal uh, quirk for me, but I, I retain it much better when I'm listening to something on audio than if I'm just reading it, you know, if I'm reading someone's note or paper or even a transcript of a conversation. Yeah. I don't, yeah. Yeah, well, I think some of that is, you know, when you're, when you're, you know, when it's two people talking, you're usually telling stories and stories are much more salient to people. Yeah. And I think uh, versus when you're writing, you're usually taking, you know, especially in the financial arena, you're taking kind of a more formal tact and, you know, laying out a thesis. And, but, you know, when you're, you know, when it's two people talking, um, either in person or, you know, on online, you know, you're usually telling stories. And I think that's why, that's my guess is why uh, some of those um, things, maybe those points are a little bit more salient. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I love podcasts. I'm a huge uh, consumer myself. Um, well, that was a great little intro there. Um, I, I want to, uh, let, let's, let's dive into uh, a little bit about what's going on in the world uh, these days. I mean, from, from, from what I take it, uh, from what we talked about a little bit earlier and, and uh, some of your, your work that I've, I've, I've read in the past, uh, you, you, probably have a slightly more of a, a value type uh, approach to when you're looking at investment opportunities. Am I correct in saying that? You know, it's funny because I think I probably have a, a value personality, but over time I have recognized the, the um, efficacy of quantitative techniques. And so a lot of those are, like you said, momentum mm -hmm. um, based. And so I think there's, you know, I think there's definitely room for both. Um, so I think I've, you know, and like we, we talked about personality as well. I have found that, uh, following models is probably, uh, a better fit with my personality than trying to, uh, you know, do that bottoms up research and build a portfolio that way. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we've, we've had a, a number of, of quants on, um, that, that we've spoken about the same sort of stuff, you know, um, Meb Faber, who uh, I'm, I'm, I know, and <laughs> I, I, he has a great podcast as well. Um, and we, I like his, his stuff. Uh, and we, uh, we were just talking about how, um, you know, with quantitative investing and factor-based investing, it, it really strips out a lot of the emotions. And, uh, but he was saying that basically, okay, you have all this data that you're using to produce these models. Um, but even then... Uh, you're still at some point you're, you're in control of like you have to press the trigger. And so there's, there's still a human element. So, Absolutely. Um, so I was making comparison to say pure fundamental investing value, the value, value investing, where you find intrinsic value of a, you know, a security, you build in a margin of error and then you, you, you know where your entry price is and you take advantage of market dislocations to get in at your price. But that requires a lot of, uh, subjective um, sort of building your your sort of confidence and your conviction level and a lot of times it's it's quite lonely when you're when you're when the markets are dislocating and drawing down and you second guessing yourself third guessing yourself uh, so I, you know my example uh, when I was talking to Meb was in that situation I, I think I would feel a lot better if I had 
80 to 100 years of back-tested data that have, has driven these models. Uh, but then I, and then he was saying, but you still, even when, even though you have this data, there's still a human element because you still have to pull the trigger. You have to act according to those, those factors. So right. what are some of the, what, how, what's your sort of strategy when, when you're, when you're investing? Are there, are you mostly, uh, looking at equities or, or all across, uh, sort of a macro view on your portfolio? It's really across everything, but I think you're right in terms of, like you said, quantitative models, you know, they're built by humans, they're implemented by humans. And, you know, the biggest challenge for an investor, whether it be quantitative or fundamental is, you know, when do you decide that something isn't working? And so, you know, that's always, I think that's always the challenge. And I think, um, you know, for fundamental investors, having some sort of checklist, having some sort of guidelines, uh, which they can check in with. Uh, over time, I think is helpful. And, and the same is the case with quantitative investors as well. But yeah, no, I, I like to look at, um, I kind of like to look at everything uh, across the board. And uh, I, you know, uh, I don't want to be equity exclusive. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm really looking at pretty much, uh, uh, you know, uh, asset classes across the board. Which I think it's, it's important, especially given where we are right now in this current tape. Um, you know, what, what are your sort of thoughts here? I mean, I, I uh, <laughs> from a, so from a value perspective, uh, if we would have, if we had this conversation one year ago, it would have probably been exactly the same. It would have been like, okay, um, markets are not cheap. They're getting valuations mm -hmm. are high and yeah. all about, like it would have literally been, and we would have missed a lot of this uh, Absolutely, yeah. run that, you know, if you're a momentum guy, you're loving it because you're, you caught a lot of that, the tail of this, uh, this bull, bull market run. Um, so, so what, what, uh, how are you positioned? Like what, what, what are you looking at? What are you afraid of right now? You know, how does this bull market end? <laughs> no, I mean, I think there's, you know, I think there's, there's plenty to be afraid of. And I think, which is the nature of, um, you know, the nature of financial markets. I mean, I think there's always something to be afraid of and there's always something that can drive you, that can drive you out of the markets, you know, uh, President Trump has been a, a font of uh, things to be afraid of. And so, <laughs> uh, you know, I think there's, there's no shortage of those things, which I think is, which underlines why having, um, you know, some sort of discipline in terms of your asset allocation is really important. Like you said, it's easy to get scared out of a position. And, and so having some, um, some guidelines, which you're working with, I think are, uh, I think is important. So, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, in terms of, you know, there really isn't, um, you know, if from a U.S. based investor, it's hard to find a whole lot of opportunity in, you know, either U.S. fixed income or equity assets. Um, you know, I think some of the things that might look interesting, you know, kind of the, the value investor in me looks at commodities, uh, might look at energy and say, you know, these are two areas where, um, you know, the, the market is kind of bypassed of late. And I think, um, you know, I think those are two areas that might be interesting to, uh, you know, start if you, if you have avoided them to date, then maybe dipping your toes in uh, might be something to look at there. I think, uh, yeah, I think you're right. Uh, and I think that Given where valuations are, like you said, in equities and fixed income, it might be prudent to, you know, rotate out of some of that, take some chips off the table if you have, uh, if you are invested there and look elsewhere. I don't know if, do you look at Asia at all or international at all? And is there anything that excites you uh, when you look globally? 
Well, I think, you know, I have been, uh, I have been, uh, I was early in my uh, over uh, allocation to emerging markets and finally, you know, 2017 and, and late 2016 was finally kind of the, the time for those markets to shine. And so that's been uh, something that I've been kind of gratified to see that those markets have kind of played some catch up relative to the relative to the U.S. markets in Asia. You know, I think, um, you know, it's not an unknown story, but I think, you know, Vietnam is interesting in the sense that, you know, you're beginning you once you have you know, once you have a futures in place, you know, I think it makes it more accessible to institutional investors. And, you know, you know, kind of the, the classic transition for an emerging market is, you know, once you have uh, greater liquidity and greater institutional investor participation, you know, you have, you know, you might have some potential there for revaluation. So, uh, and kind of the other thing in Asia, which I think is, um, uh, understated or maybe uh, underreported is the fact that, uh, you know, China A shares are going to continue to be, you know, kind of uh, slowly added to the major emerging market indices. And I saw, you know, there was kind of a lot of news when it first happened, but that's going to, that's a process that's going to continue over the next few years. And Mm. so um, I think that's, uh, you know, I think it's uh, maybe getting underplayed at this point. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I think that if you could get ahead of that, sort of large tailwind when, when all these indices are essentially going to have to start adding, including uh, the Chinese yeah. shares into their, their global markets and regional market indices. Um, you know, I mean, the trajectory of China is, is only going one way. It might be a bumpy ride, but it'll, right. it'll be in one direction that's going to be up. So, um, I mean, I think that, again, if you take take that timeline and stretch it out and are not bound by, you know, quarterly uh, returns or annual returns, then I think right. there's a big opportunity there. Yeah. And I think that's maybe why people are kind of, you know, it's not a big bang. It's not happening all at once. And so maybe that's why it's uh, a little bit happening uh, a little bit under the radar. So, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's the, the the get rich slowly thing doesn't really sell, but <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, uh, it's, if you can get it right, it's, it's far more lucrative, I think. Um, so let's, let's talk a little bit about your book uh, that you wrote, which uh, is, which was called the same thing as your, as your website. Is that right? I've no return. That's right. Yeah. So what was the, uh, I mean, I guess you, were you blogging before you wrote the book and that kind of was a collection of your thoughts or? Yeah, no, I had, I had been blogging for a long time at that point, And it really, you know, like you said, it was really an opportunity for me to, um, you know, I, I, it's interesting because I started with a blank page. I didn't, I didn't take anything that I'd written before and, mm-hmm. and, you know, cut and paste it into the, into a word doc. I really started with a blank page. And so that really gave me an opportunity to just kind of look at the kind of the themes, uh, things that I keep kind of coming back to. And so that was really kind of the the impetus for writing the book. And, you know, it's kind of, uh, it's almost, uh, you know, as as I think people who write for uh, kind of on a frequent basis are almost feel relieved when they write something in the sense they can kind of, they can get it out of their head and you get it out of your head, put it onto paper and you kind of can put it behind you. And that's, that's oftentimes how, kind of how I feel about the book was, you know, there are a lot of things, a lot of themes kind of uh, bouncing around in my head and getting it down on paper and out into the world. And and you can kind of move on to uh, move on to other things. And so. It's, uh, it's such a huge undertaking that, uh, you know, people that haven't written a book, 
would, wouldn't know how, how much work actually goes into writing a book. Yeah. And, uh, and now, especially now, uh, with the way the, uh, the model is working, like no one makes money off books unless you're uh, writing about vampires or something like that. Right. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, I, no, I got great advice when I was, uh, you know, uh, preparing to write the book. And I've kind of given the same advice to people who have talked to me, you know, uh, people who are interested in writing a book afterward was you have to, you have to do it because it's something that you really feel like you need to do it. Like you said, there's, there's um, little to no money in it. And uh, if you're doing it for monetary reasons, that's likely, uh, that's likely going to backfire on you. But if you're doing it because, you know, it's something you feel really compelled to do and that you feel like it's, uh, you know, it's, it, in, in a large sense, it's really a calling card saying, look, I, you know, yeah. uh, I'm able to organize my thoughts in a, uh, in a sustained fashion and uh, really provide you uh, that sort of calling card. And so, yeah, it's, it's not a, you know, the, um, uh, hits in the book arena are few and far between, especially in the areas of finance and investment. <laughs> and so it really has to be kind of a passion project as it were. Oh, absolutely. And it's like, a it's, it's like you said, it's like, uh, this idea of just of shipping. I think Seth Godin talks about it. Like you have to ship your project or whatever it is. It's just a, it's, it's like a, urge you have to check it off the list mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh and it's it's strange because I, I feel like uh with as much gratification as doing a big project like that brings you and you you relieve some of that pressure that pressure automatically gets filled with another next project or another thing that sure. you have to do so it, it's a it's a lifelong struggle i think <laughs> but it's uh it's something to be proud of though absolutely you know i mean it's i think people don't uh, they underestimate how much actually how hard it actually is to write a book you know yeah it's funny because one of the things that when i when i first started blogging i thought that i would uh i thought one of the main things that i do content wise would be to review books and um you know after having you know realizing uh and i knew pretty i knew pretty early on what was involved in writing a book and i really just uh frankly i couldn't bring myself to write bad reviews um <laughs> i know even even a bad even a bad book is somebody's you know is is a measure of uh, of somebody's work and time and effort and you know i you know i'd much rather uh you know not talk about a book than say something negative about it just because you know maybe that's <laughs> Maybe that's a failing on my part, but I'd much rather highlight the things that I really like and enjoy yeah. uh, than try and, um, you know, uh, try and bring down uh, or say negative things about uh, something I don't like. So It's really a shame for the author, I think, because uh, and it's kind of a function of both the industry and and I, I don't know, just just the way things have evolved uh, again with the Internet and this sort of thing of content and how things how readily available information is now online. But uh, the flip side of that is is actually the reader. It's a it's it's like a knowledge arbitrage opportunity. You know, I mean, think about how much time you spent, mm -hmm. years of experience, you know, gathering and collecting your thoughts on the book that can be purchased for you know probably fifty bucks or I don't know how much you're selling it for, but that's that to me that's like the greatest uh, education arbitrage that's out there is is books you know yeah no absolutely i think like you said it's kind of a it's a it's a concentrated dose of knowledge and i think uh you know when it when it works it's apps you know like you said it's almost priceless and and so yeah no i think that's absolutely the case
So what was the premise of your book? What, what, what was, uh, what, give us the uh, executive summary, if you will. Well, it was really just organized around a lot of these different themes. And so it was really kind of, um, uh, it was kind of soup to nuts going all the way from risk and return and talking about, uh, talking about equities, talking about fixed income, talking about alternative asset classes, talking about um, some issues in terms of uh, behavioral finance, uh, talking about how to be a better, more uh, informed consumer of financial media. And so it was really kind of um, hit on a lot of different themes. I don't know that there was, uh, in that sense, it was uh, the book was probably blog-like in terms of uh, jumping from topic to topic. There wasn't um, some overarching theme um, other than the fact that, you know, like as we talked about earlier, investing is difficult. Uh, it's a challenge for everyone, even uh, for both institutional and individual investors and recognizing that and, and having some humility when it comes to uh, our approach to investing, I think is that if there's a theme that that's it. Mm. Uh, but, you know, it's really kind of a, a, a again, kind of a, a, an overview of the investment world as I saw it. So that's pretty interesting. Um, and is that is that required reading for your class that you teach? No, no, I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do that to my students. Uh, I think, uh, no, I think it's um, like you said. I'm. Um, it's something where uh, you know uh, I, I'm trying to look forward and. Um, hopefully that's one of the things that I like to do in my class is kind of keep it relevant and try and keep it as up to date as possible. You know, when you're talking about the investment world, things are always changing. And so, you know, that's one of the, that's one of the challenges. Uh, you know, I'd say my classes, uh, is heavily based on, uh, podcasts, blog posts, articles, uh, research papers and things like that. And less on, uh, less on books. So is your, the class that you teach, is it a, uh, is it more of a one-on-one type class or is it uh, focused on actual sort of uh, investing strategies and this sort of thing? Well, it's, a, it's actually, it's all, it's actually all about alternative investments. And so oh, it okay. on, it's kind of an overview of alternative investing, uh, hedge funds, private equity, venture capital, uh, and some real assets thrown in there as well. And so uh, the students at the undergraduate level get a, you know, get a lot of exposure to traditional asset classes. Um, the one thing they don't do or they don't get, which um, I think is important, is get, uh, get exposure to alternative asset classes. And the, so that's, a, that's, what a, that's what the course uh, tries to accomplish. I see. I see. And are you yourself an investor in, in some of these alternative asset classes and private equity and this sort of thing? Yeah, no, I think that's, um, you know, one advantage I might have as being able to teach a class is I have, you know, I have been involved in hedge funds. Um, I have done some angel investing and investor in some venture capital things. And so the one area I don't have direct firsthand knowledge is private equity, but, uh, you know, hopefully I can, uh, hopefully I can fake it there. So, but no, I think having some exposure and, and having some understanding of the process, I think is important. And I think, um, you know, I think that's hopefully one of the things I bring to the table. So uh, what's one sort of, uh, as a private investor, uh, you know, it's, I, yeah, I, I would imagine that it's, uh, it's difficult uh, at times. Uh, it's, you know, investing is, can be a lonely sort of uh, craft. Uh, and oftentimes it feels like it's you against the market. And it, that's, that's often the case as well. Um, but especially when you're, you know, when you're out there and there's a lot of resources now that we have newsletters and books and podcasts, as you said, what are, what would be sort of your, 
uh, starter toolkit, if you will, for um, maybe one of your students. Like, hey, you know what? I want to, I want to, uh, you know, try my hand in investing uh, as an individual, as a private investor, not going to work for a fund or this sort of thing. What, what, what? Any recommendations? Well, I think you know. I think there's a, a few recommendations. One is trying to keep your costs as low as possible. And so, you know, I think there's, uh, and that's one of the great things about investing today is that you know, there, uh, the cost of investing, the cost of commissions, uh, the cost of uh, the annual costs on ETF have come down to you know, not much different than zero practically, and in some cases zero, actually zero. So I think keeping your costs low, I think, is important. Um, the one thing that I, you know, that I think that you know, I think that we've touched on earlier in our talk is the fact that you really just have to do it. I mean, you have to get started. And obviously in the, you know, for somebody who's just getting started doing that in the smallest way possible, um, you know, there's really no, there's really no substitute for experience. I think you can read, you know, you can read all day, you can do as many back tests as you want, you can, uh, you can do all of those things. But until you actually put a dollar um, on the line, you really don't have a sense for what it is to be an investor. And I think that's really the challenge. And so, you know, I think back testing is great. I think that can really be informative. Um, but like I said, until you put a dollar on the line, you're really not going to have a good sense for it. You know, the, the analogy I like to use is that, um, you know, when you're water, watching a sporting event and even if you have, you're watching two teams and let's say you put a bet on with a friend of yours for, you know, for $5, you're going to root like crazy for one of those teams. And right. even though it's $5 or $10 mm -hmm. or even $20, you know, you recognize that there's an emotional component to when you put money on the line and the same is, and the same is the case with investing as well. And so one of the things that I have found um, that I've kind of railed against is, you know, at least in the, you know, in the U.S., sometimes there are these courses for uh, high school students and college students to have um, essentially like an investing contest and where the where students pick a, a few stocks. And, you know, it's always the case where, you know, there's some kid who picks you know, a triple leverage DTF and, um, you know, wins the contest and everybody thinks he's a genius. And it's like, well, yeah, you'll do that in a contest when there's no money on the line, yeah, but we exactly. can do that in, in real life. And so it's really not, it's really not much of an, you know, really not much of an educational tool in my mind. And so uh, that's where I, that's where I think, um, uh, you know, actually having to go out there, put money on the line, yeah. even, even if it's in a really, you know, like I said, even if it's just a you know a few bucks, I think is is as as informative as anything. Yeah, I mean the 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 pain, sort of the pain that you feel. It's uh, very real when you when you lose money. And, Absolutely. Uh, and actually, you know, you know, like some people are when you talk about speculating, these speculators are like, oh, well, you shouldn't put money in unless you're willing to lose it all. Like I don't like hearing that that phrase being said because I feel like that just makes people lazy investors. You know, I mean. You should care about every single penny that you put into an investment and you should do as much work as possible to try to learn as much about the investment right. and go in and, and tip the odds as much in your favor before yeah. you go into something, right? So now we talked about compounding and you know, uh, anybody who has, has, has worked with a spreadsheet and trying to calculate compound interest knows that, you know, big negative numbers are going to, you know, are going to kill that, kill that compounding rate quite quickly. So yeah, yeah no, there's no, there's no, um, there is no, um, there's nothing brave about losing a lot of money. There's nothing, <laughs> you know, there's nothing, uh, nothing to be proud of in that regard. 
No, absolutely not. So uh, for the audience, the other thing that I wanted to recommend actually was uh, Tadis is your, your blog or your blog and your, your basically your uh, subscription service uh, where you can, you essentially what, what uh, Tadis does is he's, you sift through uh, all this information and you put out sort of uh, the, the best articles of the day. You do it on a daily basis, right? Yeah, we do that on a daily basis. Yep. Yeah. So I, that's a that's a great. You know, I get the email, and um, so what we were talking about before, where how the markets are so massive, and there's so many rabbit holes you can go down to, and sure. it's like you know trying to drink from a fire hose. A lot of times, I I catch myself uh, in the morning, especially in the morning, where I'm trying to get through news flow and try to catch up, mm-hmm. and then. I'll look at the clock and it's two hours later because I've gone down a rabbit hole sure. about, yeah. you know, reading some article and, and then gone down this path. So, um, so I, I think that's another, uh, sort of, it's not a, well, it could be classified as a skill is trying to just, when, once you find your direction of, of what you're focusing on, whether it's equities or fixed mm-hmm. income or whatever your, the trade of the day is, um, to be able to filter a lot of the news flow and skip a lot of the art, you don't have to read everything, but you have to find the pertinent right. information. So I think that what you, the product that you put out is actually very valuable. Um, and that's something that, um, and, and, and you can, that you offer for free, which is amazing. I mean, yeah. well, yeah, no, I appreciate that. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I like the, the only caveat being is this, is, these are the things that I find interesting. And so they may not necessarily be things I agree with. And, you know, hopefully I'm finding things that, you know, are challenging or uh, to my thinking and to other people's thinking. And so it's, you know, that's really kind of the, that's kind of the standard that I'm using when I'm trying to, you know, deciding whether to put something in one of the link fests is, is it interesting? Is it um, something that's going to hold up for more than a day or two? You know, it's really not a new, you know, in that sense, it's not a new service. You know, there's, there's plenty of new services out there. Uh, I'm really trying to find things that are going to have value uh, or be of interest to readers for a day or two or week or, you know, hopefully even months and years. So, uh, yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's such a good, good thing that you, you do. So I appreciate that. Um, well, Thomas, thanks so much for your time. It's been really, uh, it's been a pleasure chatting with you. Uh, lastly, is there anything that you're working on that you're excited about, uh, in the, in the coming months or maybe into next year, even, uh, that you'd want to share with the audience? Well, uh, nothing uh, life altering, but I think, you know, if anybody wants to come to Abnormal Returns or follow me on Twitter, you know, I think you can get a sense for uh, the process that I use. And like you said, uh, you know, it's definitely, it's kind of uh, my view on things. And so hopefully uh, it resonates with people, but if it doesn't, there are a lot of other people out there doing kind of uh, some of the same things. So hopefully, um, you know, I hope everybody enjoyed our talk and, and uh, you know, hopefully check in, uh, you know, check in with uh, Abnormal Returns going forward. Absolutely. And we'll get that all linked up. Well, thanks awesome. so much for your time, Thomas. We really appreciate it. Thanks very much. I appreciate it. All right. Take care. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. All of the show notes and links can be found over at jkimshow.com. Come back often and don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss the next exciting episode of The Jay Kim Show. As always, I'd love to hear your questions, comments, or future guest suggestions. You can find me on Twitter at jkimmer. That's J-A-Y-K-I-M-M-E-R. See you in the next episode.